thank you. I'm sure my students are very happy with all the help and with your answer here, right? And thank you for such a question to your students. <laughs> And on a more personal note, um, I would just like to say I know the kind of danger that you put yourselves, all three of you, in Russia, and I applaud you for your courage. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think you guys definitely passed the class. Um, and now we will open to you, the audience, for people that have questions. If you want to line up at the two microphones that we uh, have down here, um, uh, and we'll take a few questions. <laughs> Oh, we need the microphones on, Everett. If we could please have the Q&A mics turned on. Thank you. It's a live conversation with Pussy Riot on WCBN FM in Ann Arbor. Okay. Okay, we have sound. The microphone over here to our right. I want to thank you so much for coming to Ann Arbor, Michigan. I appreciate the fight that you guys have fought against Vladimir Putin and fascist leaders across this world. I will ask you now, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States has said that it is unconstitutional to sentence young people who are under the age of 18 to life in prison. In the state of Michigan, we have 300 more than any other state across this land. In Michigan, we have 300 people. I appreciate the work that you have done to bring light to the rights of prisoners in this country. Right now in Michigan, we have 300 people who were sentenced as adults under the age of 18, unconstitutionally sentenced to life in prison. I'm asking you right now, what do you think? What can we do? What can we bring to light to make sure that the people of this state, the families who are impacted by people who are sentenced to life under the age of 18. That's what I'm asking you right now. Thank you very much. One more thing. I'm so sorry. Right now, we have an election in 2012 right now. Mark Totten. You need to vote for Mark Totten because Dave Schutte, Schutte is going to hang these young people who have committed acts. Vote for Mark Totten. Vote Democrat in 2012. Thank you so much. In 
что могло привести к этому. То есть совершенно очевидно, что любое преступление, даже если оно реально имело место, общество не должно снимать себе ответственности за это преступление. Поэтому просто нужно вот эту ответственность донести до людей. Well, you know, first of all, you should put up a website where you would describe in a lot of detail the biographies of these 300 people who are uh, in prison. And uh, because no matter what has happened in the lives of those people, society uh, should never take off its responsibility in what has happened to them and with them and with their lives. So you should uh, take uh, some effort to describe how their lives went and how they committed and how was, how what happened to them has happened. This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. It looks like the recording has cut off there, but you've been listening to Posey Riot speaking at the U of M Stamps School to an audience there. And you've heard their entire discussion as well as one of the question and answer session. So thank you very much for listening. This is WCBN-FM in Arbor. My name is Mike. I do a show called Pandora's Lunchbox. Starts roughly about now. Usually starts a little something like this. If Pandora's box is a box of chocolates Would I know To stay away Hand off his box, the box of chocolates. Would I eat them anyway? Cause every time I have half a mind to leave you, babe, that means I have half a mind to stay. It is, in fact, Pandora's Lunchbox, a show about food. And in just a moment, we're going to hear an excerpt from a book called Consider the Fork. The History of How We Cook and Eat by B. Wilson. But in the meantime, uh, looks like Patsy Cline is hungry for love.
Hey, Patsy Klein, that is Hungry for Love from a collection called The Birth of a Star. 17 performances on the Razor and Tie label. Cutting edge, yes. This is Mike, and this is Pandora's Lunchbox. And here now is a segment, an excerpt from the book, Consider the Fork, A History of How We Cook and Eat, by B. Wilson. This is read by Allison Larkin. Are you hungry? I'm hungry. To be able to boil something in a liquid which may or may not impart additional flavour was a big step up from fire alone. It's hard to imagine a kitchen without pots and therefore hard to appreciate how many dishes we owe to this basic form of equipment. Pots enabled consumption of a far wider range of foods. Many plants that had previously been toxic or at least indigestible became edible once they could be boiled for several hours. Pots mark the leap from mere heating to cuisine, to the calm, considered intermingling of ingredients in a man-made vessel. Historically, the earliest cooking was roasting or barbecuing. Evidence of roasting goes back hundreds of thousands of years. By contrast, clay cooking pots date back only around 9,000 or 10,000 years. Large stone cooking pots from the Tehuaca Valley in Central America have also been found from sometime around 7000 BC. Roasting is a direct and unequivocal form of cooking. Raw food meets flame and transforms. Boiling and frying are indirect forms. In addition to fire, they require a waterproof and fireproof vessel. The food only takes on the heat of the fire through a medium, whether oil for frying or water for boiling. This is an advance on crude fire, particularly when cooking something delicate such as an egg. When you boil an egg, it is removed from the onslaught of the fire by three things, its own shell, the wall of the cooking vessel and the bubbling water. But boiling water is not something encountered in nature very often. Geothermal springs can be found in Iceland, Japan and New Zealand. They are sufficiently rare, however, that they still have the status of a natural wonder. In pre-industrial times, living near hot springs must have been like having a samovar the size of a lake in your backyard, an improbable luxury. The Maori of New Zealand, who lived close to the boiling pools of Wakarawerawa, traditionally used them for cooking. Food of various kinds, root vegetables, meats, would be placed in flaxen bags and suspended in the water until cooked. A similar technique has been practiced in the geothermal regions of Iceland for hundreds of years. Today in Iceland a kind of dark rye bread is still made by placing the dough inside a tin and burying it in the hot earth near the springs until it is fully steamed, which usually takes around 24 hours. The archaeological evidence is unclear, but it is reasonable to assume that ancient peoples living near gazers experimented for many thousands of years with dipping raw foods into the swirling steam attached to a stick or string that could be used to wipe out the food once it was done, ideally. Unless our ancestors were far more dexterous than we are, many pieces of perfectly good food would have gotten lost in the volcanic water like chunks of bread tumbling into a fondue pot. Still, gazer cooking has many advantages over fire cooking. It is less labour-intensive, all the work of creating a heat source is avoided, 
It is also gentler on the ingredients themselves. When cooking directly in the fire, it is hard to avoid the problem of charred on the outside and raw in the middle. Food bathed in hot water, on the other hand, can cook in its own good time. A few minutes more or less do not desperately matter. Most people, however, do not live anywhere near geothermal springs. If you had only encountered cold water, what would it take for you to get the idea of heating it up to cook with? Water and fire are opposites. Enemies, even. If you had spent hours getting your fire going, the wood gathering, the flint rubbing, the piling up of sticks, why would you jeopardise it all by bringing water near your precious hearth? To us, with our easily reignitable burners and electric kettles, boiling is a very prosaic activity. We are accustomed to pots, but cooking in hot water would not have seemed the obvious next step to someone who had never done it. The first conscious acts of boiling took great invention. To make a vessel for cooking when there was none before is a feat of huge creativity. In geothermal cooking, although various bags and strings may be used, they are not essential. The earth itself containing the bubbling water becomes the cooking pot. In the absence of hot springs, however, boiling requires a container, one strong enough to withstand heat and from which the food will not leak. In the days before clay pots, what could it be? Before the first potter fashioned the first pot, certain foods came ready to cook in their own vessels. Shellfish and various reptiles, notably turtles, seem to have their own pottery casing. Seashells are still used as serving vessels and utensils. When you eat a steaming bowl of moule marinière, you first choose one of the mussels as a handy pair of tongs to pick out the flesh from the other mussels. Similarly, the indigenous early Yagan people of Tierra del Fuego used mussel shells as a dripping pan to catch the grease from a seal as it roasted. Several anthropologists have suggested that it would have been a small step from using mussel shells in such a way to cooking in containers. Shells have often been spoken of as one stage on the route to man-made pots. But were they? A mussel is hardly big enough to boil or fry anything in but itself. Catching drips of fat is more the action of a spoon than of a pot. Native Americans were among those who used clam shells for spoons and sharpened mussel shells as knives for carving fish. But they did not use them for pots, so far as we know. A pearly mussel pot, it's an appealing thought, would only be large enough for dinner to feed a mouse. What, though, of larger mollusks and reptiles? It has been said that the example of turtle cookery, as practised by various Amazonian tribes, proves that boiling was viable long before the invention of pottery. Cooking in a turtle shell is certainly a romantic notion. Whether anything was cooked in turtle shells except for turtles themselves is another matter. Moving on from shells, there are some more plausible candidates for the first cooking vessels. Tough-rinded vegetable gourds of various kinds made very handy prehistoric bowls, bottles and pots. Hollowed-out bamboo stems used all over Asia are another plant-based family of cooking vessels. But bamboo and gourds were only to be found in certain parts of the world. 
A more universal vessel after the discovery that meat could be cooked was the animal's stomach, a pre-made container that was both waterproof and, up to a point, heatproof. Haggis, beloved of the Scots, boiled in a sheep's stomach, is a throwback to the ancient tradition of boiling the contents of an animal's belly in the stomach itself. In the 5th century, the historian Herodotus recounted how the nomad Scythians BC used this technique, boiling an animal's flesh inside its own paunch. In this way, an ox, or any other sacrificial beast, is ingeniously made to boil itself. Ingenious is the word. The tradition of stomach cookery shows how sharp-witted humans were in finding better methods to cook their dinner when they had no pots and pans, no Teflon non-stick griddles, no gleaming copper batterie de cuisine neatly dangling from pot hooks. No method was as ingenious as the technology of hot stone cookery practised across the globe starting at least 30,000 years ago. After thousands of years of direct fire roasting, people finally figured out a more indirect way of using heat to cook things in steam or water. It has been said that this transformation in how food could be cooked was the greatest technological innovation in food preparation until modern times. This is how to make a pit oven. First, Dig a large hole in the ground and line it with stones to make it roughly waterproof. Then fill the pit with water. You could skip this stage if you dug the pit below the water table, in which case it would fill up automatically. In Ireland there are thousands of traces of hot rock troughs cut into the watery peat bog. Next, take some more stones, preferably large river cobblestones, and heat them to a very high temperature in a fire. Cooking rocks were heated as hot as 932 degrees Fahrenheit, hotter than a pizza oven. Transport the stones to the pit, using tools such as wooden tongs to avoid burning your hands, and drop them in the water. When enough stones have been added, the water will start to seethe or boil, and food can be added, topped with an insulating lid of turf, leaves, animal skins or earth. As the temperature of the water drops, continue to add more hot rocks to keep the boiling constant until the meal is cooked. There were many variations on stone cookery. Sometimes the stones were heated up inside the pit itself instead of in a separate fire. There would be two adjacent sections, one for the water, one for the fire and the rocks. Sometimes the food was steamed instead of boiled. Root vegetables or pieces of meat could be wrapped in leaves and layered up in the pit with the hot stones without adding water, in which case the earth pit was more like an oven than a boiler. Hot rock cookery is still practised in the clam bakes of New England, in which sweet clams just harvested are cooked right there on the beach, layered up in a pit of hot stones, driftwood and seaweed which keeps the clams juicy. The method is also used in the Hawaiian luau, in which a pig is covered in banana or taro leaves and buried in a hot pit, an imu, for the best part of a day, then unearthed with great ceremony and jubilation.
everybody gather round and listen to that bongo sound. Grab the first one in your reach. Now we're gonna shake the beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do the clam, do the clam. Grab your barefoot baby by the hand. Turn and tease, hug and squeeze. Dig right in and do the clam. You can't get your heart to spin on the outside looking in. Well, let's work up an appetite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do the clam, do the clam. We'll grab your barefoot baby by the hand. Turn and tease, hug and squeeze. Dig right in and do the clam. Pretty much could only be Elvis Presley, you know what I'm saying? Do the clam. I couldn't find clam bake on time, but I found his other clam opus. Most artists don't even get one clam opus. Elvis had two. That was Do the Clam. Before that, we heard an excerpt from Consider the Fork, A History of How We Cook and Eat by B. Wilson, read by Allison Larkin. This is Pandora's Lunchbox, and coming up at 7, Face the Music with R. Wolf. Don't have a lot of uh, prose prepared for you, but I will read this first sentence from a story out of USA Today. Food stocks suffered a minor case of stomach flu Wednesday after General Motors dumped a bowl of lower-than-expected quarterly results in investors' laps. Did they pour milk on it after that? It's beautiful prose. I don't know what else to say. However, that's all I got. Anyway, 
What is a popular ingredient in food? Of course, that is honey. How do you get honey? You squeeze bees. What do you think about that, Ivor Cutler? Huh? blind man sat on the top of a tree and he sang in a voice like milk I'm looking for a beautiful girl sang he with brown hair and red cheeks a lady who can climb trees and squeeze bees for their honey Ivor Cutler, thank you. I think we have time for one more food song, though. Isn't really a food song, but it has food in it. There's food buried in it. You have to squeeze it like a bee to get the food out of it. The food shows up later in the song. This is Sam Cooke. Nothing can change this love. Nothing can change our love for you, OWCBN people. This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Tune in for Our Wolf and Face the Music in mere minutes and keep on listening. If I go a million miles away, I'd write a letter each and every day. Cause honey, nothing, nothing can ever change this love I have. And you can pass me by, but honey, nothing, nothing can ever change this love I have for you. Oh, you're the apple of 
your cake and ice cream Lower your sugar and spice And everything nice You're the girl of my, 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 my dreams But if you wanted to leave me and roam When you got back I'd just say welcome home Cause honey, nothing, nothing, nothing can ever change this love I have for What a beautiful and reassuring program you just gave us, Mike. Thank you. I'm reminded of the words of Harry Sweets Edison, who once said, oh, I got class I ain't even used yet. This is WCBN FM in Arbor, 88.3. Here's the frequency. It's time for Face the Music. A long running portion of our educational mission here at the student-run radio station at the University of Michigan, one of the great alternative education experiments at this university involving, well, it's community outreach, a whole lot of people from the Ann Arbor community, a lot of U of M staff collaborating with the students to um, help you to use more than 12% of your brain and also to help you to feel better. And it's really important that we feel better together. So that's why I came down here tonight. I'm still, uh, I'm going to be doing this for a long time. Actually, I've been doing it for more than 35 years, really operating along the principles of what I've come to refer to as postmodern Fats-Waller theory. All roads lead to Fats-Waller and back again. Exhibit F, or J, perhaps, Fats 